one of the most significant mission fields that that there is. And so it's just given us a, a big appreciation for what it takes to just be faithful in the midst of everyday life and, and to see that the real opportunities and the people that, that don't have the blessing of a church, community, or family and how, how significant it is that we need people in those places to just be in the light of the world anywhere that we go. And so I've had a privilege, been a great experience for me, and I'm grateful that God's allowed. So it's, you know, pastor, missionary, chaplain. I think I've got them all. Um, and so we'll just keep going and see what God does with it. But we we'll love hearing, staying up to date with you guys and what God's doing at North Shore. Last time we were here, there wasn't a dock, and now there's a dock. Man, it's good to meet you, and it's great to see how God's using you in this place. There wasn't uh, plans for a new building out in the lobby. I mean, so God's on the move, and we're praying for you guys, and so it's just exciting. It's an honor to be with you. And so this morning... Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bible um, or your phone or however it is that you partake of the scriptures. Um, you might want to follow along there, but it's great to be with you, with our family here on, on Father's Day. And I don't have a Father's Day message for you, but I have a message about our Heavenly Father because I think that's better than anything I could come up with for, for us as dads. just wanted to make sure we have something that connects with all of us. But before we get into Luke chapter 15, because it's a story that, that you're going to be familiar with. And, and so what's amazing to me is that no matter how many times I get to prepare a message and preach the Word and, and study a passage of Scripture that I've, I've preached maybe dozens of times or read hundreds of times, that the Word of God is living and active, right? And any time we open it up and open our hearts and our minds to what God has to speak to us, we find things there that we've never seen before, and God speaks to us through those things. And so my prayer is that through a familiar passage this morning, maybe you'll see something that you've never seen before, something that kind of rocked my world uh, fairly recently. But I also want to say this, you know, when we open up the Bible, it's we have to remember that it's not just, you know, good words that Jesus spoke and um, universally, it, Jesus, they are that, but Jesus spoke these words in specific places at specific times to specific groups of people. And that makes him even more powerful when we take a minute to take a step back and say, well, what was, who was Jesus talking to? Why was this important for that place and time? And, and Jesus was gaining popularity and his messages and the crowds were growing to where he was. And there was kind of two significant groups that were following Jesus, right? The sinners and the religious people. For two completely different reasons. Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. He befriended the tax collectors, which in that day, they were the most scorned people that there were. They were, they were lower than low, and nobody wanted to be associated with them. And not only did Jesus befriend them and build community around them, he invited them to follow him and be with him. And even some in the disciple core were from this background that nobody would have wanted to be associated with. And so here in Luke chapter 15, we see Jesus teaching, and there's two main crowds present. There's a sinner and tax collector group who Jesus was friends with, who he's preaching this message of hope and forgiveness and follow me and salvation. And then there's a group of religious people called the Pharisees who are intentionally trying to find fault in anything that Jesus says. And those people, that group of people, the Pharisees, are the ones who eventually were responsible for getting Jesus killed. Because they were out, to, they were manipulating what he said. They were using it for their own personal agenda and gain to elevate their status. And so we see Jesus preaching and teaching to those two different crowds, and it's incredibly significant. And in Luke chapter 15, uh, it's the it's a 
couple parables about things that are lost. It starts with the lost sheep, and it then talks about the lost coin, and then it talks about the prodigal son. And then this is what I want us to first of all see this morning, is that things that are lost are of tremendous value to God. Things that are lost. Things that are not currently where they should be. I don't know. My family can attest to this in maybe more ways than one, but I am a chronic loser. I'm a chronic loser. Like, and the older I get, the worse it gets. And it's like on any given day, it's like my keys, my wallet, my phone, my backpack, my computer. Like, I managed to make it out of the house missing something that I desperately needed. And then I don't realize how important that lost thing is until I and missing out on what I was going to use it for. And so I can't leave the house now without my family going, Dad, you got your keys? You got your wallet? My wife's going, do you have your phone? And it's like, I can't even get mad anymore. I just concede. It's like, because uh, they're usually, usually there's something back where I left it and I can't find it. Anyway, things, you just experience this, right? When something's missing that's supposed to be there, we experience just kind of a micro level of how important the things that are missing are to our daily lives. And in this case, Lost people are incredibly valuable to God, but lost people may not be in the place that we think they should be. And this passage in Luke helps us understand a little bit more about that. So I'm going to start reading and um, we're, we're going to read a couple of verses. We're going to stop. We're going to talk about it and work our way through uh, the, the story of the prodigal son. So I'm going to start here in Luke chapter 15 and start in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, this is in that culture, it was not unusual for children to receive an inheritance from their parents. And in that culture, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the property of the parents, and then the remaining third would be divided among the rest of the children. So in this case, there's two sons. So the older son would be given his two-thirds, and it's the younger son that comes to dad and says, hey, could you just go ahead and give it to me now. And so, like, what we see here in the biblical time is what we're seeing right now in the millennial generation is just this idea of entitlement. Hey, give me what's mine. I don't want to wait till the time that it's supposed to be mine. You know, we have this epidemic of younger people wanting what their parents have right now. They don't understand the idea that people had to work 20, 30, 40 years with a lot of discipline and with a, a lot of perseverance to get the, the houses and the cars and the possessions. They think that as soon as they get out of college, that's what they should have. Just give me what's mine. And they're ignoring the timing that God may have for those things. And so we see that idea. It's not a new idea because here in the Bible, the younger son has this attitude of entitlement. And so this first son that we see is the rebellious son. He's a rebellious son. God, give me what's mine. He has this attitude of entitlement. He doesn't want to wait. And the, the thing that's tragic is it's like it's not that God doesn't want him to have those things. It's his. He has a right to it, but he's trying to manipulate God's timing. And when we try to manipulate God's timing, we're compromising the will of God. And this rebellious son, his major, his first major flaw was the spirit of entitlement where he was trying to get what was his in a way other than the way that God provided for him. And so then we see more about this rebellious son going on in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent 
everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this idea of entitlement, so he cashed in everything that he had and he went and lived in the way that he thought he deserved to live. And the Bible says that he lived recklessly with what he had. He didn't live on a budget. He wasn't concerned with how long it was going to last. And within a short period of time, he had lost everything that he had been given, everything that God intended for him to have at a later time, maybe because when he was older, he would be more responsible and he would understand better what to do with it. But instead, he went ahead and got what was his and then he wasted it. And he squandered it on what the Bible calls reckless living. If you read commentaries, it has all of these references to debauchery and partying and and just doing everything that rebellious people do. And so entitlement can lead to recklessness. And this is the heart of rebellion. And so we see that. He wasted it in wild living. We see that he reaped what he sowed when it came to the possessions that he had. If you, if you know the Old Testament, you also know that for a Jew to be hanging out with a pig is a big deal because not only is it an animal that's disgusting, it's unclean. It's ceremonially unclean. So not only is it a, a position of status, it's a position of shame. It's a place that nobody could comprehend. Being You would never find yourself there among the swine, the unclean pigs, and you certainly wouldn't want to eat what they eat. It's an indication of his desperation. And then it tells us here that nobody would give him anything. There's kind of a subplot here. So not only did he just want what was his, not only was he entitled, not only was he living recklessly, but it's like it seems that the main reason that he came to that is he removed himself from a kingdom community. He removed himself from the people who could speak into his life. He removed himself from the influence of people that could coach him up and train him up and disciple him in the ways of the kingdom. In isolation, in isolation, we put ourselves first and we can justify anything that we want to do. This rebellious nature, we can look at him and go, what a tragic case of rebellion. What a depraved person. What a terrible... Except for you and I are born into that same sinful nature. We see that rebellion at work in our hearts. Maybe not in, in that dramatic of a way, but maybe in smaller ways when we're tempted to, to not wait for God's timing. And to, to go, well, God, I've worked, I deserve this. It's been long enough. It's time. Let me just... Come on. We see this, we can see this at work, so before we're too hard on the rebellious son, we need to say, oh, hold on just a second, because I have some of that rebellion in me. Some of that is alive in me. I see that at work in me. The scriptures teach us that there's an enemy prowling around to devour us through temptation and through leading us away from God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And we see that that happened. Nobody would give him anything. When you remove yourself from godly relationships, You're removing yourself from the very tool that God uses to bring blessing to his people. How does God bless people? Through his other people. What's the best way to experience the provision and love of God? Being in community with other godly people. When we find ourselves outside of that, we're robbing ourselves of an opportunity to experience the blessing of God through how he provides for his people in a loving way. So we see this rebellious son. Now, that would be just a tragic story, right, if it ended right there. But it doesn't end there. In verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven 
and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired, as one of your hired servants. And so we see this amazing transformation that the rebellious son becomes the repentant son. He comes to the end of himself. It's a beautiful opportunity that everybody has, and and it's characterized by these things. He comes to the end of himself, and he recognizes and confesses his sin. I've sinned not only against my father who gave me this gift and dishonored him through how I squandered it, but I've sinned against the God who gave my father that blessing to give a blessing to me. He recognizes and he confesses his sin. He goes one step further. Not only does he realize this was a terrible idea, this is a sinful thing, but he gets up the courage to not just think that in his head and his heart, but he takes a step out of that realization and he returns to the Father. He returns to the Father. And we're going to look at that in just a second. But this is, in in biblical sense, this is just simply turning to God. This is repenting of his sin. Recognizing that there's a sin issue in his heart that's a problem against his family, that's a problem against God, that he's recognizing that he's reaped what he sowed in reckless living and entitlement. And he comes to the end of himself. Every rebellious person has this opportunity to just come to the end of themselves. To confess their sin and go, I've made a mess of this. I can't save myself. I can't get myself out of this. But then he gets to take this other action and he returns to the Father. And his expectation is not, I'm going to go back to the Father and get another inheritance. It doesn't say that. It says that he's just going to return to the Father and beg to be treated like one of his Father's servants. So he comes and you see the humility that's experienced from the rebellious son becoming the repentant son. It's an invitation. It's an example. It's a model for what can happen to anybody. And we'll look a little bit more here in verse 20. And he arose and got up. Do you find yourself in a sinful position in a place that you know you shouldn't be? Recognize it, confess it, get up, and get out of there. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin, began to celebrate. Every single person who comes into the kingdom of God is welcomed with celebration. Heaven throws a party when somebody converts from death to life. When somebody goes from sin to forgiveness and eternal life, heaven celebrates that every single time. And I love the detail in this picture because the, the, the son was coming in humility. He was coming expecting to be a servant. And we think, I think we think that God sees us that way when we come in our sin. He's like, well, shame on you. And you're lucky I'm letting you back in here because you certainly made a mess of this. And we come to God with our heads low and our hearts shamed. And God is showing us here that that's not what he wants, that he wants us to come and he wants us, He receives that humility with grace and forgiveness. And, and while we're hung low, he sees 
sees us, comes running to us. He doesn't wait for us to get back. He's always watching. The always watching eyes of God are waiting for our return. And when people turn back to Him, it's met with the celebration of a loving Father. The point of this story, it's, it's mistitled actually. It's not about the prodigal son. It's about a prodigal dad. And prodigal just means lavish. And so a lot of people want to focus on the lavish living of the prodigal son who squandered everything. But the point of the story isn't the prodigal son, it's the prodigal dad. It's the prodigal father that in response to his son's reckless living and entitlement, when he comes to a place of humility and forgiveness, prodigal God lavishes everything that he's got to give him on him. And this is the way that our Heavenly Father sees us. It's not just, well, you don't really deserve for me to forgive your sins, but I guess I will because because I have to. It's like, no, welcome back. He runs and hugs and, and kisses. And not only that, he takes signs of uh, symbols of the family. Go get the robe, which makes some people say, well, that's like royalty. And it's just a, a really significant gift to put on him. So not a servant, but he's reclaiming his place in the family. He's reclaiming his position as a son of God. Not a servant of God, a son of God. The loving prodigal father is embracing him and holding him close and putting the ring, the signet ring of the family and putting sandals on his feet, which in that day and time, sandals were a luxury. Servants didn't wear sandals. Only the well-off, only people in the family had that. And so the father's saying, no, 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 you, thank you for coming back. So glad to see you. Welcome. Let's celebrate. Let's kill the fattened calf. That wasn't a normal part of their diet. They didn't eat meat like, you know, we're going to do today. Thank you, Jesus. Like, they just had a simple diet and the fattened calf was only for the most special of events and occasions. He ordered the robe and the ring and the shoes. He's establishing his place in the family. A lost son being found. A spiritually dead person being brought back to life is worthy of celebration. We don't ever need to forget that. For those of us that have been in church as long as we can remember, sometimes I think we get away, we, we forget sometimes about how significant it is to see God change somebody's life and welcome them in to the family of God. So here we see the prodigal dad, lavishing gifts, lavishing grace, lavishing, lavishing relationship and acceptance and celebration. That's the same. Maybe we should just remember, that's the same way God welcomed you into his family. And it may have been a long time ago, but that emotion is as real now as it's ever been. And if there's anybody here this morning that you identify with the rebellion of this, and maybe, or maybe you've got a family member living in the reality of this and your heart is broken, don't give up hope. Don't be discouraged because there's always a way back. There's nobody ever too far off because while the sun was still a long way off is where God saw him, God received him. There's still hope for the hopeless. God's still calling people into his kingdom. And Jesus was saying this for the benefit of the tax collectors and the sinners who were in the crowd, giving them hope, inviting them to identify with this, inviting them into his family, inviting them to confess and turn from their sin, to come to the Father for the forgiveness of the sin, and watching them being restored to their rightful place as sons and daughters. Anybody can come. Now, here's the thing that, that kind of blew me away by this is that when you study this and you read commentaries and scholars, guess what? The main part of the prodigal story is not anything that we have read yet. The focal point of the prodigal son story is this last bit that happens next. 
and verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was hungry or he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost but is now found. So the final part of this, we see the religious son. First we saw the rebellious son, who became the repentant son. But there's two sons here living in disobedience. Not just the rebellious son, but the religious son, because Jesus was teaching the Pharisees. He was drawing attention to their heart and their behavior. And they would look, these are the people that they were so faithful that they went into their spice rack and tithed 10% of their cumin and their salt and their pepper and their parsley and whatever it was, they followed the letter of God's law to the most specific degree possible. They wore clothes that signified the teaching of the scriptures. They were in public places. They held office. They should have been the ones at the front of the line welcoming sinners in to salvation. But instead, they would look and they would go, no, 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 no. Not those sinners and those tax collectors. They don't belong here with us. Jesus was giving a rebuke to the religious people of the day because their religion was used to elevate themselves. They looked at their obedience and used it as an opportunity to think more highly of themselves than the people that were around them. And the focal point of the prodigal son's story, the prodigal dad's story, is the rejection of the religious son of his brother. That he doesn't see the world the way God sees the world. He's not valuing the lost in the world. He's valuing his own position and his own status. And it breaks the heart of the Father. And I think that we see a couple things. Religious can be a dangerous thing because religion is a a system by which people are counted righteous. But Jesus is about a relationship through which we believe in Him and come and have our sins forgiven. It's not about the laws that we abide by. It's about the forgiveness that God has given us. It's about the relationship that we have with Him. And religion is not enough to save us. Repentance is required to save us. And when we understand how much we've been forgiven of and how much we've been saved from, then we value the salvation of other people. We don't ever use our relationship with Jesus as an opportunity to look down or or frown upon other people's status because we should just be seeing them as people who are a long way off, who God can welcome back in. But the religious brother was like, why would you do that? I've been faithful the whole time. Where's my calf? Where's my party? You give me a goat. God, where's mine? So all of a sudden, the faithful religious son becomes entitled, just like the rebellious son. And he uses his religion to puff himself up instead of to serve other people. We see a couple things. The religious son is arrogant. He's arrogant. His religion made him arrogant and thought more highly of himself than other people. He became angry and he began to emphasize how good he was and everything that he had done. 
Christianity is never about what we've done. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. If ever our faith becomes pointing to us and our works, then we're pointing to the wrong place. If it ever stops pointing to Jesus, then we need to find ourselves in a fresh place of repentance. It's not about our faithfulness. It's about His faithfulness and our response to a loving God who's showing us how important people are to Him. So He was arrogant. This is an epidemic in our day. The next thing He starts to do is compare Himself. Comparison. Instead of just being faithful to what God has put in front of him, he starts looking to the right and looking to the left. Well, I'm better off than that guy. I've done more than him. Jesus gives really strong rebuke to other people in other places. When Peter is given, when he's restored after after denying Christ three times, Jesus asks him three times, you know, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Yes. And he goes, and one day this feeding my sheep is going to take you to a place that you would never choose to go. And Jesus was telling him, it's going to cost you your faithfulness. is ultimately going to cost you your life. And Peter looks around and he's looking at John and he's like, well, what about him? Why don't you say the same thing to him? And Jesus goes, what's it to you? What happens to him? This is what I've asked from you. Comparison is never something that God intends for his people looking right or left to measure our status or success by other people. It's a relationship with Jesus. And the only comparison we have is to ourselves. What are we doing with what God has placed right in front of us? He rebukes the Pharisees in three more chapters in Luke chapter 18. He gives a rebuke to the Pharisees. He says, well, they pray like this. Thank God that I'm not like these other people. Thank God that I don't have the struggles. Thank God that I don't have the sin. And Jesus said, how dare you? Never in the kingdom of God is there a a justification for looking at other people as less than we are. Because every single one of us at one point in time are sinners in need of a Savior. Every single one of us responds to the same invitation to become a member of the family of God. The point is not to look around. The point is, what is God calling me to? And am I being faithful with what he said? And then the last thing we see in the religious son is jealousy. He was jealous. I remember growing up in the church, and it's like, I don't have a very dramatic testimony. Right? I remember being a teenager and, and somebody would come in and they would give this dramatic story of how they were addicted to something and been on this terrible path and, and just this heathen world that they lived in and God radically saved them. And I was just like, wish I had a story like that. That's really cool. Like, why couldn't, why, God, and it's like, but do you understand what's behind that? I am neglecting, I am not being grateful for the protection, the provision that God has given me. Throughout my whole life. It's not for me to compare. It's not for me to be jealous of somebody else's story. It's for me to be faithful to my own story. Faithful to my own opportunities. Faithful to what God has put in front of us. The righteous son feels that way. I've been here the whole time. I've been faithful the whole time. God, why Why is that story more important than mine? Why does he get a fattened calf? Why? And the saddest thing is there's no resolution to this story. The religious son never, as far as we know, doesn't come to repentance. In this story, the rebellious son is wearing the father's robe. And the religious son doesn't respond. For you and I, I think the point for us is that what's our response? What's our response? 
Where do we find ourselves? Where, do we, where are we tempted the most? Are we in a place of rebellion? Are we in a place where it's like there's secret sin? We know it. We know that God sees it, but we're still hanging with the pigs, going, this is really gross and I shouldn't be here, but we're still there. And maybe today's the opportunity where you come to the end of yourself, just like the, the rebellious son, and say, I'm ready. My father's family is completely provided for. I'd be better off with him. You would be better off. If you're in a place of rebellion, that's between you and God. But I want to remind you, you're better off with the Father. And your reception to the Father is one of celebration, not guilt and shame. Through Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, taking our punishment, taking the the punishment our sin deserved, we receive grace and mercy in exchange for that confession and repentance. We come to the end of ourselves. We return to the Father who says, welcome home. Here's the robe. Here's your ring. Here's your sandals. Welcome home. If that's you this morning, there's some people that would love to talk to you about that and help you with that. Or maybe I had to identify, I had to come to the place in my own heart where when I studied this, I realized several years ago, it's like, I'm the religious brother. I'm the guy thinking, hey, I've been here all along. God never had this wild, never had that. Why? And God had to change some things in me so that I started to begin to value what was lost like he values what's lost. I don't get to celebrate the status quo in my own Christianity and religious preferences. I'm put on the planet to be light in a dark place and to see other lost things become found. And the response, it doesn't matter if you're rebellious or you're religious, the response is the same. Repentance. Come to the end of yourself. Confess your sin and be welcomed home by the prodigal dad who lavishes us with grace and mercy. And we rejoice in the father nature of God who no matter where you are, whether you're near or far, who leaves the porch, who comes running with his arms flailing, wraps his arms around you and says, welcome home. We can give thanks to Jesus for his sacrifice on the cross that makes it possible to move from death to life. And then for those in the room, and a lot of times I think this is the, sometimes it's for us, right? Sometimes, you know, we're rebellious, sometimes we're religious, or sometimes we're just in a great place of faithfulness where our relationship with Jesus is thriving and we see him at work in our lives. But the reality may be, maybe it's a loved one close to us that's in the depths of rebellion. Maybe it's somebody else that we know that's suffering from the strongholds of religious thinking. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. And I just want all of us to remember that nobody's too far gone. The lost things are still being found. And God uses the prayers of his people to be a blessing to those who need him the most. Our opportunity is to respond in faithfulness to what God has put before us. So with that, I'd just like to, would you bow your heads with me? And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you died for us. Thank you that you are the God of the rebellious and the religious. Thank you that nobody's too far gone. Thank you that you are still bringing dead things to life. Thank you that we get to celebrate. Thank you that we get to be a part of this.
And so, Father, for those in the room that are in need of a response this morning, I pray that you would give them the courage to repent and return. God, may we return to you, our prodigal dad, to be restored by the depths of your mercy and grace. Thank you for your word that still challenges us and speaks to us and draws us close. Thank you for a church building. Thank you for a church community where we can come and be sharpened together. And God, may you continue to use the community here at North Shore to see dead things come to life and to see prodigals return. In Jesus' name, amen.